morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the TT Podcast. It's the second rest day at the Vuelta a España, and we're into the gruelling mountains that make this race so punishing. Joining me to discuss stages 10 through 15, and uh, perhaps most crucially, Roman Bardet's historic victory on stage 14, is my co-host Tom. Tom, how are you? Good afternoon. Not particularly looking forward into getting into the events of anything that happened yesterday, because I know you've got quite a bit to say about the cycling and a few other things that went on as well. But uh, yeah, other than that, uh, another week at the Welter Down. Um, not sure it's been the most interesting. It's not been the least interesting. Let's get into it. I, th- look, I think we've had enough drama. We've had tips. We've had <laughs> we've had wheelies. We've had, uh, and obviously Roman Bardé taking his first ever world tour win outside of France, which is monumental. Uh, but we will come on to that. Well, mainly I'll come on to that and you will be, you'll kind of be a listener on that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, stage 10. Let's start there. We had a big break. Uh, Stora ended up winning that one. Second stage win for, for DSM. I mean, DSM have now won three stages. So they're, they're uh, making up for what has been a pretty bad season for them so far. Uh, maybe that's not fair to say that. Who won, who won their third stage? Uh, that would be Roman Bardé, oh, <laughs> but we'll come on to that. Um, the great entertainer, Primoz Roglic, attacked the peloton with 25 or so kilometers to go. I'm not really sure why. Uh, it seems to be just he got <laughs> bored, maybe, um, paid the price uh, and absolutely binned it. Yeah, dusty roads, especially when you're getting down there in the south of Spain as well. And uh, it was because he like he found a gap going up on the on the ascent, going up, and then just... Everyone knew it was coming. The commentators on the on uh, GCN Eurosport, whatever it, I can't I can't remember who was uh, on comms at the time, but everyone's there going, "He's got to be careful. He's got to be careful. He's got to be careful." All of a sudden, we're getting the camera shots of Roglic off his bike in the Armco at the side of the road. And it's going, well, why have you done that? <laughs> there are a lot of people who are very passionate, uh, involved Roglic fans, and I don't know why. It, it, I mean, obviously, I, I do know why because I love Primoz Roglic, and he's a, as I say, a great entertainer. But it must just be so difficult for them knowing that when he launches these attacks, there's going to be some point where he's on his ass. He falls off on the flat, like in on, on the, in the sprint stages. Like, like, I get it. You know, sometimes you've got to take risks, but he was not in a position there where he really needed to like take time off someone else and go hell for leather down a, a pretty sketchy descent on an, on just some random back road uh in uh, coming into Rincon de la Victoria, some hills that I know well because I've run them when we lived in Malaga and, and they're awful. Even the ones we had to run up were terrible. The ones they find to ride a bike up must be just, yeah, these nondescript, not even in the areas that you would consider to be the hilly areas of Spain are still just, it's all horrible. Well, this is exactly my thought for stage 11. So the race organizers have clearly scouted out the wall that we finished on in Val de Peñas de Jaén, uh, which is just this tiny provincial town, not much going on there. I looked up that town. There's about 4,000 uh, people that live there, um, which is less than Whaley Bridge, where I've been staying in the Peak District for the last week, um, where in Whaley Bridge, there are two restaurants um, and I managed to eat in both of them uh, and cycle just, up all of the hills once around in both me. of them. Yeah, once in both of them, and then a couple of uh, very large pasta dishes at home to fuel my cycling. It's fun. You say you cycled up all the hills around them? I would say, yeah, mainly. I've, I've seen footage of you walking a bike up to certainly at least one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the thing is, I wasn't there for KOMs. 
Um, and you know, sometimes that's, that's, put, that's lucky, isn't it? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you've got to put a foot down and there's no shame in that. Uh, and the trick is when you have to put a foot down, always style it out as a photo opportunity. Yeah. You boomeranged it at least I saw. So, uh, Just no one knows it, if you're going, <laughs> make it look like you've stopped to take a photo. If anyone else goes past, be like, Oh, sorry. Yeah, obviously bit steep but it's all right and you just got to take a good photo nice scenery and then just bend over your stem and pant for five minutes i saw Uh, you tweet though i know this we've gone off on a bit of a segue away from the vuelta here but you did tweet saying that there was a at least one professional rider sailing past you every day yeah fred wright he um was flying around i I, you know i saw i know he's a london didn't see him get off the bike on the hills well i don't look obviously i couldn't hold his wheel but uh for all i know (laughs) He was he was going through the same turmoil that I was in some of those hills. I mean, he's a Londoner. He's used to the the flatlands, so uh, I, I'm not sure what he was doing up and around there. Um, he, needs to, he needs to get out to Epping Forest, then, doesn't he? He definitely does. That's where the big <laughs> kicks are. That's what I'm used to. I'm used to the you know 600 meter climbs at Epping Forest, not these 4k climbs in the Peak District. Yeah, more but, of a uh, classics man. More of a classics man. That's me. <laughs> um, anyway, back yeah, to Spain. High end. This. I have just no idea where they found this from. Um, but I'll tell you what, thank God they found it because that was an absolute thriller of a stage finish. Oh, it was really good. It reminded me, and I think I, I sent you a message at the time just saying it looks like the Murder We um, in uh, Belgium, uh, but just even worse. Like the, some of the camera angles they had, I don't know if it, was, if it was, you know, just good directing and camera work, then they have just managed to point one like vertically down. But it looked steep and normally when you're watching climbs on tv the camera does a disservice to the gradient and sort of you know flattens it out especially on a on a longer gc climb it almost looks like they're they're not really going uphill at all until you get that helicopter shot where you see all the hairpins snaking up uh, but this one just looked like some sort of almost 45 degree yeah up some a wall of just sheer I don't. I, I don't know how to just unless unless you saw it, and I'm to be honest, I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this probably did see it. It just looked awful. <laughs> it, it looked like velodrome yeah. banking, is what it looked like. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it maxed out at about 25, 26 percent. Um, obviously, some of the roads I was riding were maxing out at thirty three percent. Not to look down my nose at the riders of the Vuelta. Um, won by Primoz Roglic in the end. Uh, there was a beautiful moment where Enrique Mass kind of had a pop. Uh, and then turned to Roglic, started eyeballing him. And Roglic was like, what are you doing? Like, come on. I'm off en- now. Well, it's just like, Enric, you know not to mess with me on these punchy climbs. This is my bread and butter. This is, you know, when it's the Vuelta, we've got a wall to finish on. This is where I shine. Uh, and he did. Yeah, uh, I felt bad for, there was a point leading into the bottom of the climb. I think it was, it was Magnus Court, wasn't it, who... Um, hit the bottom of the climb first and you thought he didn't have a chance and then halfway up he was still there and you thought actually he might stick this and then he got caught a lot later than I think anyone expected him to and I was there thinking he really might and then obviously Roglic just comes straight past him. So I was looking at the Strava profile of that climb today and it pitches up about 20% then it level I say levels off it gets to about 10% then it goes back up into like 15-20% again so I think when it got to that level a bit and Magnus Court got a little bit of a kick. Still yeah. yeah. And we were like, oh, well, maybe you hang on here. I mean, I've, and then it got to the final kick and he had, didn't have a chance. But there's, I've seen pictures of him, you know, zigzagging sideways up that mountain afterwards. Uh, he didn't have a chance. Um, 
do you know, here's a little stat for you, as I was on Strava looking at these, let's bear in mind, of course, that not all riders update, upload their information onto Strava. But Wait, it doesn't count if it's not on Strava, so they really should. <laughs> Who do you think was the fastest in the final 300 meters of that climb? Uh, so it's not going to be, you wouldn't be asking if it wasn't someone other than Roglic. It could be. I mean, he didn't put on Strava, so obviously it doesn't count, but it could have been Roglic. Oh, right. According to Strava, who holds the KOM on that climb? Oh, better not be Roman Bardet. This can't be another section that we're going to do on him. And, and he was going backwards, so I don't think it is him. Well, actually, it's funny you should say that. Roman Bardet was one second off the KOM. The KOM was taken by Felix Grosschartner. Um, okay, also, I would never have guessed at him, but yeah. <laughs> so he did that final bit in 40 seconds, Bardet in 41. Odd Christian Eiking in the red jersey also did it in 41. So he was obviously kicking for his life up there and ended up putting in a really good time. Yeah, once he must have uh, surfaced that road or something, he must be on home turf. <laughs> but yeah, that was a, a fascinating stage. Obviously, we felt a bit sorry for Magnus Court getting caught at the end. Uh, not for long, though. Not for long. Stage 12, he wins it on the throw with Bagioli. Yeah, a bit of a transitional stages really wasn't it high end uh that you just spoke about to cordoba which is a lovely city i have definitely been there you can go and see the uh the mosque and i know you've definitely been there as well you would I've not have not to gone to, what you surely you went to cordoba no so when we were living there i went to i've been to granada malaga the best, the best city ronda ronda's got a beautiful big bridge um where else have i been marbella the old town of marbella <laughs> Oh, the old town, soaking up the a bit old of culture. Town. The yeah. old town. <laughs> um, but no, I never went to Cordoba. What's there in Cordoba? A nice mosque? Uh, the Mesquita, yeah, which was uh, built by the Moors, the uh, the Muslims who occupied the Iberian Peninsula before it was reconquered by the Christians. So yeah, there's the old mosque is there. And then there's some pretty flowery streets. Can't remember what they're called. And they've got their you know central plaza. And then I went to a football match and saw Granada beat Cordoba 2-1 away. So great day out. Well, we'll talk about football again in a minute, Tom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, not, not much of a cycling theme in this, in this episode. No, I, I'll tell you what, Cordoba, I've always known or had, had the impression Cordoba, along with Cadiz in the south, as being two just like infernal hot cities or towns. Uh, Cordoba is the hottest city in Europe. Right, well, it doesn't really favour a, a Scandi coming no, in and winning so, the stage then. So, so the best thing to do in the hottest city in Europe is obviously to cycle there in August. Yeah, that is very <laughs> impressive from Magnus Court, especially to go so deep the day before to go right. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of in if you're playing a football match or something and somebody fouls you and you think immediately, right, I'm going to turn around and foul them back. That's I mean, obviously not the wisest thing to do while you're a bit hot-headed, but I think that's probably what Magnus Court did. He somebody he didn't manage to get. Stage, well, I think we had that two consecutive days because I, I think that was what I mean. Obviously, Roglic probably would have won that previous stage anyway. But after hitting the deck the day before, it's exactly the same uh, phenomenon. What you're talking about here, it's you just get that extra bit of motivation, don't you? Because you, oh, I can't remember. There's a term for it, but I can't remember what it is. Did you feel a bit hard done by? Then you go hell for leather and just full send Magnus Court. Good for yeah. him. And then the next day, we get on to uh, a French rider winning. The next day, Tom, I, I've been looking forward to talk about this, but I have absolutely no idea how to make sense of it. Um, it seemed to me that De Koenig just set the pace too far. So we're talking about stage 13. 
Won by Florian Seneschal. Won by the wrong French rider. Just wrong by the one by the wrong rider in general at the end. <laughs> um, De Koenig had, I don't really know what they were doing. They, they'd obviously set the pace way too high for the lead out. They dropped Jakobsen. The only person that could hold it was Matteo Trentin. And we ended up in this bizarre sprint between Florian Seneschal and Matteo Trentin at the end that Seneschal won. Yeah, it doesn't make it. I'd... Maybe, as we said, it's very hot. Maybe people just that fatigue starting to kick in back back end of the second week of a Grand Tour of the Vuelta nonetheless. And it just may, you know, on the day, just get it wrong. It happens. It doesn't usually happen to De Koenig, but, you know, they've got to have an off day once every four years or something. Well, we thought at the start, as soon as the race finished, that it was a mechanical for Jakobsen. I think one of the Koenig riders came out and said, yeah, he had a flat. So we rode on and kicked on and changed the plan in the moment. Uh, then Jakobsen himself came out and said, no, it was just my legs. I couldn't hold the wheel. Uh, and he yeah. looked a bit angry at the end. There was a, a video. I tell you what, God bless Velon, who are recording a lot of this. And for some reason, uploading these very private moments between the riders onto social media. And there was a moment where Jakobsen, just after the, the race in the kind of neutral area, goes up to Seneschal uh, and gives him a very half-hearted congratulations uh, and says something along the lines of, and I made a note of it. He said, congrats, but if you don't look behind, you're not my lead out. And was kind of telling him off. And I was like, come on, Fabio, you've had two stage wins. A lot. And I understand why these sprint these sprinters get very, you know, stage win hungry, glory hungry. Um, but let your lead out have some of the glory. If it doesn't work for you and you can't hold the wheel, that's not his fault. No, I yeah. He's got that completely wrong. Cause at the end, it doesn't matter. It's a team sport. If the team wins, everyone's happy. Yeah, exactly. You're so you'd think. And to be honest, I mean, if I were Florian Senesha, I'd be tempted to turn around and go, well, that's it. I won't I, if you can't hold the wheel. Go away. I'm I'm the sprinter now. Yeah, yeah. Turn around and be like, oh, well, turns out maybe I'm not your lead out then. Yeah. Like, uh, enjoy the last 5Ks of the sprint stages, Fabio. If, if you're going to be like that, then, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any place for that in the sport, really. If your teammate wins, you should be celebrating with them. Yeah. So I wanted to do a little kind of segment here on Florian Seneschal, because <laughs> he's one of those riders that people don't really know much about. He's one of those riders that you know blends into the scenery at De Kerning, never gets much of the glory is mainly there as a workhorse for Alaphilippe or one of their sprinters Sam Bennett in the past now Jakobsen and Cavendish Seneschal is one of the certified good blokes of the male peloton uh, when his friend Loic Shetu was out of contract at Cofidis a few years ago he asked De Kerning Quickstep to take him on and offered to pay half his wages Wow, um, did did not know that, but yeah, yeah. that's uh, for as you said, just uh, for someone who hangs around in the peloton himself, he's probably not going to be on huge wages, is he? Well, I'd, yeah, I mean, obviously, and Patrick Lefevre is known for not really paying the most sensational wages to his to his riders, so uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, maybe you know, he's just trying to help his mate out. And I, I'll tell you what, Tom, if you ever in a situation like that, I would uh, definitely do the same for you. Well, of course I would as well. Then, Thank, I appreciate you put that. me put me in the unenviable position here of obviously not being able to say otherwise. <laughs> also, crucially, he was the first man on the scene when Fabio Jakobsen crashed in Poland. Uh, yeah, and... that's the next thing I was going to touch on because Jakobsen, so of all people, should uh, 
you know, know that it there there is more to it than sim- than just winning stages. So Florian Sinichal was the rider who lifted Jakobsen's head and freed his airways um, so that he could breathe after that crash. So you'd think Jakobsen would turn around and say, you know what, if, you know, I've won two stages, if you want to go ahead and sprint for this one, that's fine. He's not coming out of this looking like, uh, I wouldn't want to be on his team. That's all I'm going to say at this point, Jakobsen. Oh, Look, how have we, look, we've gone <laughs> last week, I think, saying how Jakobsen is, you know, one of the greatest, most sensational, inspirational stories. It's nothing we've done, we've t- it's something we, he's done. We- now he's public enemy number one. <laughs> All we could do is react to the facts as we see them happening on the on the road. <laughs> react to the facts. Let's talk big time facts now, Tom. Stage 14. Yeah. Not looking forward to this. Yesterday was not a good day. Stage 14, the drama continues into the mountains. We have Jay Vine, who is one of the big favourites for the stage, bin it on a descent into his own team car. He got back up into the chasing group with his numbers hanging off his back, uh, eventually finished third on the stage, which apparently for the race organisers is not enough for the Combativity Award. The Combativity (laughs) Award went to Danny Navarro, who I don't think I heard mentioned at all in the commentary. Obviously, that is not the big narrative from that day. The big narrative from that stage was Roman Bardet winning. And I'll tell you what, Tom, we should have seen this coming because a couple of days before on Twitter, Matt Winston, who is the great orchestrator of DSM stage wins, uh, the guy behind the wheel, in the car, on the mic, on the uh, on the radio, told us on Twitter that they would keep trying for a Roman Bardi stage win. And uh, I'll tell you what, I didn't realize it was going to come so soon, but soon it came. And uh, <sighs> tell you what, I could have cried, Tom. Surprised you didn't? I'm surprised I didn't. Uh, and what you keep referring to here is Tom. Would you like to say where you were on uh, on Saturday when that happened? Right. So I was I was conversing with you from my seat in St James's Park as Newcastle were throwing away a late win against Southampton. I'm pretty sure the first Southampton goal, uh, they equalised to make it one all, went in the exact same second that Roman Bardet crossed the line in Spain. Uh, so that was just some sort of double delight for you. And then we, we get robbed by some dodgy 96th minute penalty decision just to compound the misery. <laughs> I honestly can't think of a, a better moment that could, you know, collide like that than Roman Bardi winning a stage and 1,500 miles apart at St. James's Park in Newcastle upon Tyne, us scoring an equaliser. If it was a winner, then, uh, you know, I may be that you know the earth would have exploded or something yeah well i wasn't particularly happy given that i was sat directly behind the goal that uh, that james ward prowse scored in but uh, in in the 96th minute after a lengthy var review uh, i was just it was one of them uh while you're sat at home tweeting whatever it is you put up. i didn't even look at our socials yesterday because i don't i don't want to know what you put up but... i'll be honest tom it was a street a stream of just <laughs> spluttering drivel it was anything and everything that came to my mind i was tweeting it i'm actually i wouldn't be surprised if roman Bardi would have us blocked by now because uh, it's just a just a horrible day all around because i'm training for the great north run which is in two weeks so i can't have a drink either so i was stone cold sober sat there on my own just miserable <laughs> getting all the notifications for these rubbish tweets i've been doing yeah <laughs> let's talk through the magic that happened at the vuelta then 
Roman Bardet is in a group off the front. He is the big favourite of the day, so much so that the Vuelta TV coverage is referring to his group as the Grupo Bardet. Um, he had to go early because he was being marked out. And, you know, it's very difficult to know. And I, one of the reasons I'm not, you know, in the peloton is because I would have no idea when to go against those groups. He goes solo with 6K to go on the climb had cleverly earlier on in that day taken max KOM points on the Ballesteros. Ballesteros? I have a Spanish degree and I've not pronounced that double <laughs> F. <laughs> on the Ballesteros uh, earlier on, um, which put him in the King of the Mountains jersey. And so once he went off the front, it was almost like he was floating up that climb. He was like 30 seconds oh, you behind. Did, you, def- you definitely tweeted something like that. I remember, I'm sure I saw a notification with the word floating in it somewhere. Anyway, he was like, <laughs> he was like 30, per second, 30 seconds off the front. And then suddenly in the space of about five, 10 minutes, he was a minute off them, off the front of the, the race. So uh, it was just, it was just magical. The whole thing was just phenomenal, beautifully orchestrated. Hats off Roman Bardet, hats off Team DSM. Hats off, Matt Winston. Long may it live. And uh, let's hope it happens again before the end of this race. Yes, yeah, stage 14 of the 2021 World Tour Espana will live long in the memory, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't really like your tone there, Tom. <laughs> you know this is important to me, and this is important to this podcast that Roman Bardet does well. It's important to you. Okay. Stage 15. <laughs> uh, I'll admit, I was. that happens today that as we are recording. Today. Um, I was helping my sister move house. So I, uh, all I know is that Rafael Micah won the stage quite comfortably uh, and that Adam Yates stole back 15 seconds. Yeah, Yates attacked late on. Uh, Micah actually went um, with about 100k to go. So it was a, a long attack from him. Uh, I confess I haven't really seen it either. I've just read the reports because I was watching uh, a, a rained off Grand Prix and saw three laps in about four hours or something instead but um it's difficult because i am struggling to enjoy this welter as much as i thought i would um even i know guillaume martin martin i've got a french degree <laughs> guillaume martin <laughs> yeah um is is sat there in uh in second place ahead of Roglic, but it just looks inevitable. Every time the race goes uphill and there's a GC battle, Roglic is so far above the rest of them that, and obviously with a final time trial to come as well, he's already won the first one and won at the Olympics. There's just this sense of inevitability surrounding the race that is making it very difficult to watch for me. So I think the big battle that we have going into these final mountain stages, which are going to be brutal, as we spoke about in our preview, uh, is Enrique Mass trying to steal seconds off Roglic? Uh, I'm not sure he'll be able to, but we know Enrique Mass is very strong on these long climbs. I'm not sure he's consistent enough, though. No, but this is what makes it interesting, Tom. I don't think Guillaume Martin should be disregarded just yet. I think he's going to be difficult to dislodge from second there. He's got like 40 seconds on Roglic, and he will not be easy to lose in the mountains. Uh, I think he was he the he king of the mountains last year at the Vuelta. He does have these off days, though. I think, was it in the Tour or the Giro? I think it was in the Tour this year where when he's not at it, he does shed a lot of time very quickly. I, I, but again, I, maybe he's targeting the Vuelta. Maybe he's using... He's French. Surely a Frenchman doesn't just use the Tour as a training ride for the Vuelta. It just doesn't seem right. I've no idea. But I mean, Kofidis will now be thinking, right, well, let's defend this. Chris, it seems 
as you say, quite inevitable that odd Christian Iking will be. And when I say odd Christian Iking, that is his actual name. That is not just me, you know, in a slur before his name. Weird Christian Iking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It seems inevitable that he will concede his uh, place at the top of the GC. Um, But I tell you what, if Guillaume Martin hangs on, there could be, well, going into this final time trial, there could be a bit of pressure on Primoz Roglic. I, there could be, but I still think Roglic is just kilometres ahead of the rest of the field once he puts his foot down in the mountains and over the, over a time trial. Okay. We're talking about the leaders of this Vuelta. Tom, I've got two quiz questions for you this week. Um, first one, quite straightforward. Which team has spent more days in Grand Tour leaders' jerseys this year. Is it Intermarché Wanty Group Gobert? Is that their full name? Intermarché Wanty Gobert Group, whatever it is. Intermarché. Them, yep. Or Jumbo Visma? Uh, in, in all the Grand Tours? All three. It's got to be... Hang on. So who was in the leaders' jersey? at the? Who won the Giro? <laughs> that would be a good start. <laughs> Uh, Egan Bernal won the Giro. <laughs> Egan Bernal won the Giro. And damn it, and Caruso came second. Surely Jumbo didn't spend much time at at the Giro. I would assume UAE had it for basically all of the tour. It probably is Wanty. So Intermarchy Wanty Group Gobert, six days in leaders' jersey. Uh mm-hmm. we had Rain Tarame and now odd Christian Iking. Uh Jumbo Visma. Five days in leaders' yes. jerseys. Yeah, Primoz Roglic has spent five days in red at this welter, and that is it for them. This that season. is it. They haven't held the jersey otherwise. No, uh, I think the team that has spent the most days in leaders' jerseys this year is, if I'm not mistaken, the Ineos Grenadiers, who held it for a number of days with Filippo Ganna and Egan Bernal basically the entirety of weeks two and three of the Giro. Yeah, that's certainly. Believable, but I'm just or maybe Pogacar yeah. held it for more than that at the tour because there was Philippe for a day, then Vanderpol for like a week. So Pogacar might have had it for yeah a bit. I should have. I'm just shocked. I'm just shocked that here. I'm just shocked that Jumbo haven't had it once in either of the first two Grand Tours. Yeah, I was surprised they didn't have it in the uh, in the Tour de France, but I think it was just so difficult to get off Tade's back that. Um, that they kind of and uh, as we've discussed before, Van der Poel just turned up and ruined the first week of racing for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> the second question I have for you is on Odd Christian Eiking, who is currently in the red jersey at the Vuelta. Um, do you know what nationality he is? Uh, yes, I think I do. This isn't the question. This is just a prelude to the question. Oh, okay. I, was gonna say, I, I don't like it if I do. If I immediately know the question, I like. I'm, you, you you make me pretend that I have to think about it, but he's Danish. Uh, he's Norwegian. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> who was the last Norwegian to wear a leader's jersey at a Grand Tour? Uh, I've got a name in my head. I'll give, you a, pretty I'll, sure... I'll give you a clue. It's probably not as far back as you think it is. Uh, I think, did he not have the leader's jersey after stage one of the tour last year. Go on. I want to say Alexander Kristoff. Correct. Spot on. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, I don't know. If I, th- I was going to make a third question for you, but I've decided to replace the third question with a stat. 
um, since we are at Spain's principal Grand Tour, um, did you know that there have been no Spanish Grand Tour stage winners this year? Do you know when the last the last time this happened was? Um, when did the Vuelta start? Like the 30s or something? There's got to have been a Spanish winner basically every year since then. Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the last time this happened was in 1954, uh, which is when... There was no Vuelta España that year, apparently. So we only had the Tour and the Giro that year, which is probably why there were no stage winners, uh, no mm. Spanish stage winners. It has never, ever happened in a year where all three Grand Tours have been held. Well, they've got, uh, one, they've got two, six three. stages. They've got six stages to uh, pull their finger out and uh, do something. Shane Valverde's out, isn't it? He would, he would, he would, he would quite fancy one. Well, I'd say what I think. A lot. There's a lot of pressure on Emmerich Mass's shoulders now <laughs> to take one of these stages. Otherwise, the whole you know Spanish racing scene is going to be brought into disrepute. Yeah. Well, Omar Fraile did nothing for my fancy Tour de France team, so uh, there's definitely nothing coming from him wherever he is. Yeah, you've already written him off. Yeah, I'm not even sure he's in the race. Just uh, not happy with him still. <laughs> <laughs> um, elsewhere today, the brown shorts triumphed in Brittany. Um, the only thing I've seen from this race is a screenshot of someone behind some cows running along the road. I, I haven't seen any of this race, I'll be honest, <laughs> uh, which is not probably a good reason to, to bring it up on this podcast where we discuss pro cycling races. Um, I saw the the last, I would say, 30 metres where for some reason Benoit Cosnefroy outsprints Julien Philippe. But the only reason I wanted to mention this was because it's probably the most French sentence uh, we've ever said on this podcast which is that Benoit Cosnefroy won the Grand Prix de Plouet in a sprint with Julien Alaphilippe. And I just wanted to say that just for the, uh, the enjoyment of uh, how that leaves my mouth. That's right. While I'm sat here saying Guillaume Martin. <laughs> Tom, before we round off this episode, we have a very special announcement. We do. Um, am I doing it or are you? I feel like it's something that you want to do. <laughs> I can do it. Yeah, we, we yeah. Um, the Tour of Britain <laughs> has kindly awarded us press accreditation for the race this year. So that means, crucially, Tom, for you and me, we will be able to see each other again in person. I know, it's going to be brilliant. And it's going to be in Newcastle because there's a stage finish at the, oh, the Angel of the North. Well, you know, just... To, it's you think Eiffel Tower, Statue of Liberty, um, Taj Mahal, Gateshead, Angel of the North. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to that long train up from London up to you in Newcastle. Uh, You're not going to ride. Uh, very un, very unlikely. Um, <laughs> we will no doubt be going out for tapas in Newcastle uh, in homage to the Vuelta a España, and then we'll head out to the Angel of the North. I'll bring my, my best fleece and uh, hopefully, you know, catch up with some of the riders that we've, we've spoken to on this we podcast. Will. And there's some, there's some big names confirmed, so it should be quite an exciting couple of days because there's the day out in Edinburgh afterwards, possibly on the cards as well. Yeah, I tell you what, I'm, I'm very excited to be uh, tussling with ITV Eurosport <laughs> to get to, uh, to Wout van Aert to get his thoughts on the, uh, the gastronomy of the northeast of England. Uh, what would he have here? I mean... Well, he might he might go for a bottle of brown ale if he wins the stage. You never know. Yeah, do you know what, Tom? And I've been thinking about this. I, I think we should go to this Tour of Britain and basically have a rule where we don't ask the riders anything about cycling. 
just to be just for a laugh we, we might have to talk about that off air for a bit afterwards but <laughs> yeah i mean just ask them you know their favorite thing about uh you know the gateshead their favorite things about aberdeen the Landed only North. thing i i can go around the world i've done it in like i've been in mexico city i've been in st petersburg speaking like russian blokes you don't know a word of english there was football on the tv and they go oh what football team do you support you go newcastle and they go oh, alan shearer that's the only thing anyone ever knows about Newcastle, Alan Shearer, always Alan Shearer, and that's it. So maybe, look, if we can pin down Julian Alaphilippe, we ask him his opinion on Alan Shearer. He'll have one. Everyone does. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, until then, Tom, where can people find us on social media? As always, uh, we will be at TTPDCST, TT Podcast, with no vowels. Wonderful. Um, we will be well we'll do a kind of well to wrap up then we'll be heading off to the tour of britain um and you know if anybody's there and they you see us give us a shout give us a wave uh and we look forward to speaking to and potentially seeing some of you there so uh take care everyone thanks everyone